audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Okay, we're in Psalms 19 today. This is one of my favorite Psalms, and we had half of it read. I'm going to read the first half here, so... Uh, if you would open the Bibles, for I think if in the Pew Bibles it's page 595, but it's around there. Otherwise, if you have your own, I don't know your page number. So, uh, uh, so let us start. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaim His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. And then we get into the law of the Lord, which we will discuss. This psalm is divided into three parts. The first part is the heavens declaring the glory of God. The second part is where the word of God declares who he is. And then the last part is the psalmist's response. And this is verses 10 through 14 of what God has revealed to him. And hopefully that is our response also. As we get started, I would ask you to ask yourself these three questions as we review this scripture. How can this psalm help me understand God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God better? How does this psalm help me understand my relationship to God, His Son, the Holy Spirit, and their relationship with me? And lastly, how can this psalm help me to worship God? With that, for the choir director, a psalm of David. David wrote this to be repeated by others. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Before we look at the heavens, what is the glory of God? I mean, we've used this word. I mean, you see later on where the glory of God descends upon the temple. It descends upon the tabernacle. So what is the glory of God? And I, this is not my definition, but uh, one of the members of the congregation had shared this with me, and I thought it summed things up very well. The glory of God, or God's glory, is the visual representation of the sum of all of his attributes. Again, the, God's glory is the visual representation of the sum of of all of his attributes. And his attributes were some of the things that we prayed about at the very beginning when we opened up. And it's also seen by Moses whenever Moses says, God, show me your glory. And in Exodus, Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. 
But God said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. God's glory is, pardon the pun, glorious. So how do the heavens tell of the glory of God? And not only in the past, which we read about already or someone shared, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, but also the present and in the future. When I think of this, um, we had a prayer meeting at Dan Langham's house this last week, and as we left, the sky was brilliantly covered. For those of you that were at the prayer meeting, you can remember when you walked out, you saw the golds descend into oranges, descend into this purple haze. It was glorious. But not only that, think of whenever you see a rainbow in the sky, which is God's promise to us that he's not going to destroy the earth again by a flood. This is how the immediate heavens tell. Well, what about the stars? Do the stars tell us of the glory of God? Again, in Genesis, we see where God created it. And for the psalmist, when you think about the, uh, the star of Bethlehem, it was the future. When we think of the star of Bethlehem declaring Christ's birth, it's in the past. But did not that star declare the glory of God? That God came to dwell amongst us at that time? The star heralded that. The heavens told us that. And what about the shepherds that were out in the field? And we know this story well, but it was told to them. At the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, that will be for all of the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you that you will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. Then the angels went away from them in heaven. And for those of us who are looking to the future, expectantly waiting for our Christ to return, what does it say in Revelation? When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was great earthquakes, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gate. 
and the sky vanished like a scroll being rolled up. Can you picture that? The sky vanishing. And then later on in Revelations, it talks about, I saw the heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And one sitting on it called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. This is how the heavens declare the glory of God. Day-to-day poor speech, and night-to-night reveals knowledge. The picture of pouring speech here is not me taking this and pouring into a water, you know, glass of water. I had the advantage of going to see Niagara Falls about 15 years ago, and this tumultuous water coming over and just pouring out. This is the pouring out that God is talking about here. Now, I don't know about you guys, but whenever I see something like that, I'm usually struck with somewhat of an awe. And this is what the night does. This is what God does to us whenever we come into his presence. There's just so much about him that we are awed. The heavens reveal knowledge night to night. So the question is, is if the heavens are doing knowledge night to night, am I learning? 45 years ago, uh, I know some of you, 45 years? Yeah, 45 years ago, I came to know the Lord. And when I first came to know the Lord, I was an evolutionist. I was brought up in our public school system, and that's what you are taught. Evolution is the way. After a few years, time in the Word, thinking about it, I became an interventional creationist. Fancy word for meaning that I believe that God stepped in at certain times in this long history that we had and made the changes to where we are today. I finally, a few years later, and it's still many years ago for some of you, um, came to the point where I believe God. After all, if God is all-powerful, if the heavens cannot contain God, if by his spoken word he saved me, then by golly, what could I do but believe that God created earth in the seven days? Now, you may not be there, but it was a progression for me over the course of time because God is almighty. So that's how he revealed knowledge to me. Um, so what is knowledge then? You know, if we talk about knowledge, I mean, that was a progression of what I would call earthly knowledge because this is how things came into existence. But how is knowledge revealed? I have a study on Saturday morning, a men's study, and um, I asked the men yesterday that were there, I says, what is knowledge? If someone were to ask you, what is knowledge, what would you say? And I always ask a question, usually because I have an answer. And for those of you that know me well, you know that the answer usually has something to do with Scripture. So <laughs> I have some people that are laughing at me right now. So, But 
I believe that scripture probably gives the best description for the dictionary that we should be using as we live our life. Other words that are used consistently throughout our culture and throughout our world, uh, words change. But with our God, the word does not change. Knowledge from Proverbs states that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. I don't know about you, but I don't like to be known as a fool. So before God, wisdom comes from him. In the light of the world, that wisdom is deemed foolish. Who do I want to listen to? Who am I going to follow? Verse 3, there is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. I had trouble grasping onto this verse. What does it mean? How does it work? I mean, the verbiage here is just really hard for me to follow. Some of you much smarter than I probably have figured this out already. But I looked in the Septuagint, which happens to be the Bible that Jesus quoted and the one that Paul quoted, so I guess it's okay to use. Um, and the Septuagint states, there are no speeches or words in which their voices are not heard. So that means that the heavens are declaring things that we can listen to. It's not in a foreign language. It's something that we can understand. So the question is, are we listening? Or are we, do we listen like the people in Psalms where it states, but my people did not listen to my voice and Israel did not obey me. So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. The reason we don't listen is because we don't want to hear what God has to say. Markle attests that on our Saturday morning study, one of the favorite quotes that we have is, believe it or not, from a few good men. And you guys know what the quote is. You know what the quote is. I want the truth. And Jack Nicholson, in his resplendent acting, says you cannot handle the truth. And unfortunately, when we come to the word of God, a lot of times we will say that we want the truth, but we cannot handle the truth. We want the truth as it fits to our lives, not how it fits into the will of God. So when the truth states that I am to love my wife as Christ loves the church, am I doing it? Am I dying for my wife? If the word says to love my neighbor as myself, I love myself pretty well. Do I love my neighbor the same? So 
So this is the picture that we're given for the heavens declaring the glory of God. And what the psalmist is now going to do is he's going to give an analogy of how a tent is made and how a bridegroom is presented and how, um, oh, what's the third thing? I'm not looking at my notes right now. Uh, oh, a man running. I should have known that. Justin runs. I should remember this. So anyway, what happens is, is that the heavens declaring is like the ropes for a tent. Now, the tents that they used at this time were usually made out of goat hair, and it's this really black tent. It's really heavy to where things can't come in and out. So this is the tent that he's talking about. And with that tent, he's saying that it's as a bridegroom coming out of the tent. The sun, whenever it rises in the morning, is like a bridegroom coming out of a tent. Young married guy just coming out, pretty happy. So what happens is, is that it's not only like that, it's also like the strong man who has run his course. For those of you that have trained for marathons or any type of running at all, when you see that finish line and you have finished the course, there is a joy about finishing it because it's done. These are the heavens that are declaring the work of the Lord. Now let's move into the verses that Dusty read. We've just finished how the heavens declare God. We're going in to see how the word declares God. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. I like the way the King James puts it. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Now, I want you to think through me on this, with me on this. Why does the soul need to be revived or restored? The only answer is that the soul is needy. It's thirsty, it's marred, or it's lacking, it's sinful. That is the state of our soul. Yet it says the law of the Lord is perfect. Another word here for perfect is blameless or righteous we have to realize that the soul is not blameless, otherwise it would not needing, would need to be revived. Therefore, the soul needs to be revived. It needs to be restored. It needs to be converted. But when looking at this verse, you see that the soul cannot be made blameless by the law. I believe the only way the soul can be made blameless, as the Bible states, is in Jesus. In Matthew 11, 28 and 29, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are heavy, weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find 
rest for your souls. This is where we find our rest. We find our rest in Jesus. So what about the testimony of the Lord? Simply put, and I think John, um, Jesus' apostle, put it best in his epistle where he says, "And and this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It is because of this testimony of Christ that the simple are made wise. We talked about knowledge in the first portion, and now we're talking about the simple are the naive being made wise. In verse 8, it says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Does your heart need rejoicing? Precepts are mandates. I mean, it sounds hard whenever you talk about, I mandate this, for that to make the heart joyful. And this word precepts is only used in the book of Psalms. If you go through the entire Old Testament, the only time that precepts is used is in Psalms. Once here, once 104, once in 111, and then about 15 million times in Psalm 119. I'm not kidding. I'm kidding about that. But Psalm 119 is the one that has (laughs) precepts again, 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 and again. So as a consequence, Psalm speaks more on this than anything else, these mandates. And mandates, again, are like commandments, so this one verse has both mandates and commandments in it, and I think that Jesus sums it up best when he answers the Pharisees as far as what does this mean? And you guys know this answer. I don't need to tell you this. The Pharisees said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So these are the mandates. These are the things that will cause our heart to rejoice. The second portion of this talks about having your eyes enlightened. Do you think you need to have your eyes enlightened? I do. Jesus thought so also. In Matthew 6, he says, the eye is the lamp of the body, so that if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad your whole body will be full of darkness if then the light that is in you is darkness how great the darkness think of each time that jesus healed a blind person one of my favorite stories of jesus healing a blind person is that jesus lays his hand on him and he asks the man he says can you see now 
And the man's response is, I see men walking about as trees. And Jesus laid his hand on him and looked at him intently, and the man's vision became normal. I think sometimes whenever we come to know the Lord Jesus, that we are like that blind man where our eyes are not fully opened. We can see and we can distinguish, but as the question is, do you really see? Do you see the glory of God in his word and in his creation? And Paul thought so also. For in Ephesians, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of his glory of the inheritance in the saints. So Paul was actually praying for the Ephesians and actually for us over the course of the ages that the eyes of our heart might be enlightened. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The word rules here can also be translated as verdict or it, like coming before a judgment seat. So it's not just following rules. It's, it's the verdict from whether the rules have been followed or not. The fear of the Lord should start with fearing him who can cast into hell. This is what Jesus says, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you to fear him. If you don't know Jesus, you should fear him. If you know Jesus, when we come to know him, our we should continue to be in awe, and this is to be demonstrated in our lives by respect, reverence, and piety toward the God that we love. The word clean here is only used one other time in Psalms. Does anyone want to take a guess where it is? Psalms 51, created me a clean heart after, after David had sinned with Bathsheba and he's trying to be reconciled to God. I want to go back to the rules. <clears throat> I want you to imagine we are now standing before the judge of the universe knowing that his judgment is going to be righteous. If you are in Christ, this righteousness is given to you when you put your faith in him. You will enter into heaven where righteousness is praised. If you're not in Christ, your righteousness is lacking and you will be given a righteous judgment, which means you will not enter into heaven. You will be separated from God to a place where unrighteousness is praised, otherwise known as hell. We don't talk about heaven and hell very much anymore. Uh, matter of fact, whenever I came to know the Lord 45 years ago, there was not much talk on it. But if you talk to my grandmother, she 
she'll tell you, or she would have told you. She died a few years ago. We cannot forget, for those of us that have trusted in Christ, in looking at the people that are around us that don't know Christ, that they are going to spend eternity in a place that we would not want our worst enemies to go to. I want to do a real quick review of the last few verses. Take a look and you see it that the law, it is perfect and restores. The testimony is sure and it imparts wisdom. The precepts are right, causing rejoicing. The commandment is pure and it gives us light. Fear is clean and it's going to last forever. And like I said, the word fear here is also the same word that is used for awe and actually awesome. Mark kind of mentioned things last week in regards to that about me. Um, and awesome is used to describe the almighty God because of his works. And that's why I have a tendency of not using the word awesome in normal everyday conversation. I bought these glasses a little over a year ago and the clerk, whenever he was selling me the glasses, whenever I picked out the glasses, that's awesome. Whenever I got ready to pay by credit card, that's awesome. Whenever I was making my next appointment, that's awesome. I'm sorry, this is not the Lego movie. Everything is not awesome. God is awesome, okay? Now, all of these things that I mentioned, if you notice, are of the Lord. In other words, the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord. It is a God-focused relationship. One of the things I found whenever I was going through this passage of Scripture that helped me was, if I substitute Jesus for each of these things, it can help me keep them in perspective. So let me read through it again and substitute Jesus in there. Jesus is perfect. He restores me. Jesus is sure he gives me wisdom. Jesus is right, causing my heart to rejoice. Jesus is pure, he gives me light. Jesus is clean, he endures forever. And lastly, Jesus is true and righteous. The question you need to ask is, do you have Jesus? So this is the glory of God. What is our response to that supposed to be? Verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Do I look at Jesus as more desirable than gold?
the effects of looking at Jesus in each one of these was that my soul is revived, I'm being made wise, my heart is made merry, I have eyes that are going to be able to see. Do I see this as more important than that cheesecake dessert? In other words, is it sweet to me? Is it something that I enjoy? We have to remember that just not knowing the law, the testimony, precepts, commandments, the fear of God and his judgments, but by not taking heed is useless. I can have all this knowledge in the world and it'll be worthless. Many years ago, and for some of you it's a long time, but over 25 years ago, I was, I, <clears throat> I was living in Hawaii and I took a bus to work every day. And when I took the bus, I lived up on a hill, so we had to go down the hill, and then we stopped at the bottom of the hill, and then we came back up the hill again. And <clears throat> at the end of the road where I lived, there was a home for children that had uh, mental challenges. And these children were, they could work, so what they did is they got on the bus in the morning, and they drove down to Dole Pineapple Factory, and they helped ship the pineapples that we eat here, or can them, one of the two. So, on my way to work one day, I get in the bus, we go down the hill, we stop at the bottom of the hill. The bus dies. My first response is, I can still walk back up the hill, I can ask Cheryl to take me to work, and I should be to work in time. Two of these kids' response was, Lord Jesus, we have to get to work, would you start the bus? Do I need to tell you what happened? The bus started, and we are at work on time. So often do I forget that my first response before God is to listen to what his word says and come to him instead of trying to figure out things in my own life. I leave this as a challenge to you also. Are you looking to God first for the answers that you need? Moreover, by them your servant is warmed, and keeping them there is great reward. Question for me on this one was, am I a servant? A servant has a master. A servant has a lord. A servant listens to what his master and his lord says. A servant is submissive and obeys. I realized that many years ago that when I put my faith in Christ, I automatically became a servant of the living God through his son, Jesus Christ. 
the question is, am I an obedient servant or a disobedient servant? He's already told us in the word what we need to do. Am I obedient? Verse 12, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. I don't know about you guys, but I can um, be pretty self-deceptive. And even if not that, there are times that I may say something, either in jest or just something spurts out of my mouth that will cause damage and hurt, and I don't even know that I've done it. This is asking God to reveal those areas of where I have sinned against him and sinned against others. Verse 13, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. I want you to watch the progression here in the previous verses. We have errors, we have hidden errors, and now we're to presumptuous sins. Presumptuous sins. What is presumptuous sins? It's arrogance. These are the sins of whenever I decide, and don't get me, this is not true, but this is the type of sin that it is. I do not cheat on my taxes, but this is the type of thing where you fudge on your taxes because you think you can get away with it, and you know that God's going to forgive you. Or, you know, I really shouldn't say that hurtful thing to that person sitting next to me, but boy, they got me earlier, and I'm going to get them now, because God will forgive me. Or I'm sitting at my computer screen and it goes to a place that I should not go. Because I know that God is going to forgive me. These are presumptuous sins. These are things where I know what the right thing to do is and I have chosen to do something different because Jesus is going to forgive me. I cry for myself. <laughs> Lastly, it says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my, God, my rock and my redeemer. The psalmist ends this psalm in a prayer so the question I have, is this our prayer? Do I desire the words of my mouth to be acceptable? In other words, whenever I speak to anyone, that my words be acceptable. Do I desire the meditation of my heart to be acceptable? I mean, if I'm disciplining myself the way that I can discipline my mouth to where it's acceptable before God. 
that it offers of praise is to put into effect Ephesians 4.29, where it states, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only as such is good for building up as fills the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do I seek that my words be seasoned as salt to give grace to those that are hearing? Or do I use my words to tear others down? The meditations of the heart are much more difficult for me to discipline because I know what's in my heart. I have a friend, and he was sharing one time that uh, he was at church, and someone approached him, and he asked, how was he doing? And my friend, being the honest person that he was, shared, he says, I am right now reviewing how bad a murderer I am, how bad an adulterer I am, how bad a godless person I am. And he wasn't saying this out of that he was committing those things except in his heart. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. Who can know it? I, the Lord, test the hearts and determine the motives. Are we willing to bring our hearts before God and lay them bare that he may test our motives that we can enjoy rich fellowship with him? Or we put a little wall up and say, it's not important. It's not important. The only way that I can find for myself, for my the meditations of my heart to be acceptable unto God is to take what his word says. Again, the word. Paul states in 2 Corinthians that uh, take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, just because my heart is tempted to go to a certain area, that does not mean that it is sin. But, I've told people in the past, there's, whenever, whenever I'm driving in Texas, have, have any of you driven out of Texas going to El Paso, going into New Mexico? How many have done that? Okay. You're driving along the road, and when you drive along the road, really, if there's no sign there that's telling, that, telling you that you're leaving Texas and you're leave, entering into New Mexico, you really can't tell by the landscape around you. You can tell by the road because it gets bumpy, but you can't tell by the landscape. However, if you're driving from Texas to Oklahoma, how do you know that you enter into Oklahoma? There's a river. There's a river that divides, and you know the minute that you pass over, you're in Oklahoma. Now, I'm not saying that New Mexico and Oklahoma are sin. <laughs> but the analogy is there. There are some times that I know that if I continue on this road, I will be in sin. And that's whenever I have that aha moment and I say, how did I get here? 
There are other times whenever there is a distinct thing of I know that I have passed from being righteous into sin. So I would challenge you on the meditations of your heart, take them captive and get off the blasted road. In all of this, when we look at the Psalms, we see in this Psalm, like I said at the very beginning, the heavens declare the glory of God. When you go out today and you see the sun, you can't even look at the sun directly for a period of time because you will go blind. And that's telling of God's glory. I love listening to the evolutionists talking about this little pearl and just how everything fits together that life has here. <laughs> I shake my head. The Lord created this earth in its resplendent glory that he might be glorified by it. I've shared about Christ today. The songs, oh my gosh, the praise songs. You guys did an excellent job today and just meditating on the verses there. I would really invite, because I don't know everyone here, I don't know if you are going to be standing before the Lord God as I had mentioned earlier and you are considered one of the righteous because of the blood of Christ or one of the unrighteous because you have not put your faith in Christ. But if you have not put your faith in Christ and really you don't desire to go to hell and you desire to follow after Jesus, I would ask that you would come and talk to myself or one of the elders. And this is one of the times that I'm going to ask the elders to raise their hands so that people know where you are. Because we always talk about seeing an elder, but and Craig's in the back, you can't see him raising his hand. I can't see him raising his hand because of the lights. But if you want to know more about this Jesus in whom the Bible talks, come talk to us. If you know Jesus and you want to learn more and say, there's, not, I, there's something more, there, I, I just want to grab more, come and talk to one of us. It is our desire that every member in this church, in this building right now, be built up and to be a faithful disciple of Christ. So I'd invite you to come and do that. So with that, let's end in prayer. And may the Lord's word take root in our lives. Holy Spirit, to you it has been given the job of conviction because Jesus said he will come to the world and convict the world of sin. Lord, I thank you for having that Holy Spirit live within my life and the life of the believers within this body, that you convict us of sin, that we can come before you and lay before you our sins Lord, as the psalmist has prayed here, keep me from presumptuous sins. 
Lord, keep me from being arrogant before you in my life and the way that I live my life before you. I would pray for those of us that know you that as we leave here today and we enter back into our homes, that we enter back into our workplaces, that literally the glory of God would shine through us to those that are around us, that they would see our revived soul, that they would see our enlightened eyes, that they would stop and ask, what is your great hope? And we can answer with confidence, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus and his righteousness. As always, Lord, we pray that you come soon and that you be glorified in all things. Amen.